Hello and welcome to The Week in Review, KUAR's look at the week in Arkansas news coming up. A Little Rock nightclub shooting leaves 28 injured. That comes after a week of 12 drive-by shootings. We'll look at the growing rate of violent crime, what's the cause, and what can be done about it. Also, could this affect a race for mayor? A volatile pesticide in three and a half million acres of soybeans. State legislators approve a ban on dicamba after hundreds of complaints from farmers. They don't see any way to deal with the crop damage it has inflicted. State revenue takes up for the end of the fiscal year. After previous talk of budget cuts, now there's a surplus, a surprise to many finance officials. That's all coming up on KUAR's Weekend Review Podcast. I'm Michael Heplin. I'm Chris Hickey. And I'm Bobby Ampazan with Arkansas Public Media. We began the week with probably some of the most unfortunate news of the year. That is a mass shooting that affected a Little Rock nightclub, the Power Ultra Lounge, which left 28 people injured, uh, I believe 25 by gunfire, uh, Saturday morning in Little Rock on 6th Street. Uh, We all woke up to the news, and uh, joining us now is Bobby Ampazan, the managing editor of Arkansas Public Media who is there to cover it. Uh, Bobby, could you kind of just first describe the scene for us when you initially arrived uh, outside the Power Ultra Lounge in downtown? What did it look like? um, And what were you told initially? Well, it's always surreal as a journalist when you arrive at the scene of a wide-scale or large-scale violence because it looks nothing like what what you imagine taking place there just hours before. I was there probably around between 7 and 8 a.m. on uh, Saturday, July 1st. I was joined by KUAR News Director Michael Hiblin as well as um, quite a number of other TV and uh, print journalists in Little Rock, and we were all looking at this, you know, this storefront in the 200 block of West 6th Street, that was cordoned off, but with police tape. Uh, what we know now is that just hours earlier, roughly around 2 a.m., an altercation broke out at the Power Ultra Lounge while the hip-hop artist Finesse Two Times was up on stage. We know this largely from a Facebook uh, Live post that was made at the time. Um, the rapper, as well as uh, his entourage and others, were up on the stage kind of doing their thing. It seems like they were wishing someone a happy birthday. And then all of a sudden, you hear these, what can only be described by somebody who's never been in a situation like that, as like firecracker pops, like just pop, 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 pop. And then uh, mayhem, the, the video goes black because presumably the, the person making the, the video put the camera down, the telephone down. Um, we know now that 28 people were injured in the gunfight that ensued, uh, 25 of those from uh, bullets. I think the only thing I can add just to the experience of being out there that morning was just the one visual that gave you 
a cue of something that had happened was just the windows of this second floor were broken, where some might have been broken by gunfire. But uh, in one case, it looks like at least one person uh, jumped through a window to get out of there. And there was an awning uh, leading into a doorway there on the first floor that was heavily damaged and really just suggested the panic that it uh, must have been like inside the club that morning. And to be clear, it, from the video evidence, it, it and even from uh, the police press conference, it doesn't appear that Ricky Hampton or Finesse two times was directly involved in the, in the gunfire. Um, so the, the the people involved are are still out. Um, they they've not been apprehended by police uh, that we know of. Of course, police are still conducting interviews, and they be may, they may be narrowing down their their list of suspects here. Yeah. They keep uh, requesting, you know, more people if you were videotaping this beyond the 10 or so, uh, I think, uh, footage that they have right now. uh, You know, they're asking even more people to uh, come forward. But in a lot of cases, uh, people aren't. That's a big problem that the police department has said uh, their investigators have had in dealing with the uh, uh, increase in violent crime is uh, nobody wants to be a snitch. Now, later that day, uh, the city held a press conference where the mayor, Mark Stodola, spoke, as well as police chief uh, Kenton Buckner. And we learned a few more details of the incident, uh, including the suspicion by police um, that the incident may be uh, gang related. Uh, Bobby, you were at the press conference. Uh, What was said and what did you learn? Police opened up about some of the details um, they, they, you know, uh, all of the injured had been sent to area hospitals, including as far away as Conway. And uh, they were kind of interested, although at the time he didn't even rank a person of interest, in this performer, Finesse Two Times, out of Memphis. Why? Well, we know now that he served six years in prison in Tennessee on an armed robbery charge. And a week earlier, he himself had pulled the trigger on, uh, allegedly, on an assault in Forest City at another club. I believe the name of that club was Club Envy. And uh, federal authorities, U.S. Marshals, picked him up in Birmingham, Alabama, July 1st, later that that night, uh, where he was to perform. And uh, they found uh, three guns in his car, which if you're a felon, you, you, you're not allowed to carry arms like that. And they arrested him. So now he's facing federal weapons charges, as well as uh, no doubt charges stemming from these allegations of the shooting outside of Club Envy in Forest City. Now, aside uh, from the arrest of Ricky Hampton, aka Finesse two times, uh, police have said there is no clear suspect in the case as of yet that's been arrested anyways. Um, and they estimated somewhere between 20 and 40 uh, gunshots were um, discharged within the club. Yeah. While he uh, is facing an unrelated uh, charge, he is still what's being called a person of interest in the shooting there here in uh, Little Rock. Uh, and they are apparently taking the uh, weapons that were seized from him and uh, comparing the shell casings that were left behind and uh, seeing if those match uh, the weapons that he had on him to see if uh, he might have actually been one of the people involved in this shooting. Police Chief Kenton Buckner said that he's he's not going to hide behind language on this. He said uh, it appears to be uh, gang-related. 
he couldn't say whether the gangs or the groups involved included a Memphis contingent and a Little Rock contingent or internally kind of within the city to Little Rock uh, rival gangs or groups. Um, but it, it's clear that 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 is the nature of the shooting and not, uh, as we so often hear in the news, a, a kind of a lone gunman, a nut or any kind of religious or political um, martyrdom. And later in the week, we learned that uh, several of the victims, actually most of the victims uh, who were either shot or were injured in their escape from the club uh, had been discharged from the hospital. I watched some uh, testimony by Chief Buckner before the Little Rock Board of Directors, and he had said at least by Wednesday, all but five of the victims had been released from the hospital. Now, of course, this came after a week where there were 12 drive-by shootings in the city. And this comes as there's been more, at least more than 25 um, homicides. I think there are even two homicides the day after in an unrelated, unrelated incidents in Little Rock. So far this year, the rate of violent crime is up 24% compared to the same time last year. And so this has gotten the city discussing more so than usual. At least it's reached a pitch where it's become a dominant theme of city discussions and city politics. Um, and it even brought in the governor, uh, who this week addressed uh, violent crime in Little Rock and a new partnership between local law enforcement agencies and the state. Michael, you covered a press conference with the governor. Um, what What is this new partnership and um, how exactly are they going to go about uh, addressing violent crime in Little Rock? Well, this is going to uh, bring in a lot of uh, different law enforcement agencies from the state and federal level. You know, agencies in law enforcement, you know, work together all the time, but this is going to be a very uh, focused collaboration. You're going to have several people from each uh, department or entity uh, actually working together in one location. The key goal is to uh, uh, target people who uh, are committing these crimes. They say this is just uh, essentially uh, like two families, not so much while there is a problem with gangs, uh, the way Mayor Stodola described it is it's really like two factions, the Hatfields and McCoys is uh, how he described it, just uh, an intense uh, where you're having something happen and then that prompt something else to happen in response. Uh, so we're going to have the FBI, Arkansas State Police, and the Pulaski County Sheriff working on this collaboration to share intelligence, target known gang members, better supervise people who are on parole who had been serving sentences for violent crimes, and also make sure that the uh, Pulaski County Jail has space available to hold dangerous people. Uh, that's going to be a, a key challenge right there. We've also had, uh, you know, the Little Rock Police Department woefully understaffed. In fact, right now they are, uh, they have 70 vacant positions right now. And uh, the issue has been brought up over and over that, Little Rock can't do enough of uh, getting out and responding to everything that uh, is going on. But I'll uh, play a cut here from the uh, governor, really, about uh, what he's 
hoping for. And uh, this was all pretty much, uh, he first brought up this idea in the hours after the uh, shooting happened when he uh, put out a statement saying that uh, comprehensive enforcement strategy was necessary. The governor has a background uh, related to law enforcement. He served as a U.S. prosecutor. He also uh, served uh, uh, under President George W. Bush in the Department of Homeland Security, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So he has uh, experiences in using different kinds of resources and here's uh, what he's uh, hoping for just in short conversations over the last few days and today with these leaders it is obvious to me that a great deal of support can be provided uh, to the city of Little Rock in their efforts and let me emphasize that even though I've underscored that what happens in Little Rock makes a difference to all of us this is a local law enforcement challenge and that must be ultimately solved by the resources of the city of Little Rock. Uh, that's what they want. That is their pride. It is their community. They will address the problems. But I'm very grateful for the leadership that's willing to say uh, we can partner better with the state and with our federal resources to be more successful in our efforts. Another point has consistently been made to me by legislators and leaders across the city, and that is that this is more than a crime problem. It is about opportunity, it is about hope, training, education, mental health treatment, and investment in our youth. And I agree with all of those points, and those are things that we have worked on, we have to continue to work on. But today, the urgent need is about safe streets and freedom from drive-by shootings and peace in our community. To me, it is about enforcing the law and having the tools to identify those that cause violence and to lock them up. And so I want to emphasize today the state resources, the federal resources that are available and provide some specific areas that we want to support Little Rock Police Department and the efforts here in our community. Well, uh, that was the governor, Asa Hutchinson, speaking there. And uh, it should be noted that he was joined by FBI, the Arkansas State Police, Little Rock Police Department. They're all going to be a part of this, as you mentioned, the sheriff's office. Yeah, prosecutors were there, uh, state lawmakers. Uh, it was very crowded there in the governor's conference room. Um, and kind of one of the elephants in the room, I guess, in all of this is that, um, you know, at, at least in the case of the Power Ultra Lounge shooting, uh, all the victims were African-American. It was an African-American club. And this latest incident and I guess incidents uh, before and after have given rise to a lot of complaints before the city board of directors and uh, city officials from the African-American community, especially uh, leaders who have long advocated against uh, violence in the city, that city officials are not doing enough to uh, quell violence in, in neighborhoods that are majority black, or at least that is not a priority among city leaders. Um, and you spoke to Michael Benny Johnson of the group uh, Stop the Violence. Um, what did he have to say about this? Well, first off, he uh, he said in there, uh, listened as the governor spoke, and uh, and in fact, just after uh, I was done interviewing 
uh, Reverend Johnson. He was uh, uh, the governor's spokesman, came over to him and invited him to come back into the governor's office so the governor could also hear his thoughts because uh, Benny Johnson has been around for uh, decades. I first got to know him back around 1994 or so. He was a young man then, but he, when he created uh, Stop the Violence was when Little Rock first had this uh, big round of uh, gang violence. Officials say what's happening now is very different from that time, though there is still some gang connection to this. He's optimistic that all these resources are coming together, but he said that uh, he hasn't been happy with how the mayor or the uh, city's police chief have addressed crime in these uh, poor uh, neighborhoods, said that, uh, you know, if something happens in this case, he points out this happened uh, downtown and that got a big response and this nightclub was quickly closed. But uh, I'll let him uh, uh, say it here. He pretty much thinks that police are not going out into neighborhoods that have big problems and taking the same approach. I'm for the Little Rock police chief to step down. Uh, when he first got here, I met with him, me and uh, late, my assistant director who passed, and he was totally against what we were saying about it, targeting these areas that the problems are. Choice Street is known as the hellhole. That property has been a, a problem for over two decades. Now, they shut this line down in, in, in one day, but you can't stop a nuisance place that's been going over over two decades. I got a problem with that. And when things happen where it affects the white community, they want to react on it. But what's happening when a seven-year-old kid got shot down? What about when a two-year-old kid got shot down? What about the three-year-old kid shot down? I got to have a problem with it when you don't, you're not addressing the number one side of the issue, and that's the white dollar. It getting too close to downtown. And uh, Mayor Mark Stodola was uh, then asked by reporters uh, during a stand-up uh, some pretty pointed questions. Uh, the criticism like that that uh, has been uh, directed towards city officials and his thoughts in particular about Police Chief Kenton Buckner. I think the police chief and uh, the men and women of the department are, are working very, very hard doing everything they can uh, to solve these crimes. Um, um, I don't know. They don't have a Superman suit on either. And so... How you try to prevent somebody from pulling out a gun and, and in the darkness of night and using it is a very difficult thing, and I think the public understands that. Mm -hmm. So I think we're making progress. Obviously, um, when you have an aberration like what happened at the lounge, on, it, it escalates the entire issue and it creates a sense of, of not only urgency but a sense of, of panic with many people. And I would urge people to give the police department the chance to try and, and get things uh, going in the right direction. And it's not just the police department. We've got our whole community programs department. We've got a whole department that's dedicated toward these issues on the issues of prevention and intervention. But you're still, you're happy with the chief's performance? Well, you know, look, I, I wish we didn't have the drive-by shootings. I wish the night, you know, the nightclub uh, situation, the power lounge hadn't occurred. Uh, I'm not sure that the chief could have prevented those. Thank you very much. Thanks, sir. Thank you. And with that, uh, after being grilled by the media there for uh, several minutes, uh, the mayor turned and uh, walked out the door of the uh, governor's conference room there, uh, I think feeling uh, rather frustrated just because there are a lot of people uh, who themselves are very frustrated. So uh, uh, there's a really critical eye at uh, the mayor's office and how his city has been handling this increase in crime. 
Yeah, and that that frustration will have you know certainly be um, on hand uh, as next year when a mayoral race for uh, the election of a new mayor comes about. Of course, Mayor Stola hasn't announced yet that he's running for mayor, uh, but we did learn uh, something about a potential runner uh, in that race. Um, Little Rock State Representative Warwick Sabin, who uh, announced in an embargo announcement um, that uh, he's uh, planning to uh, explore. explore a mayoral race. Um, yeah. But it certainly looks as much like the real thing as anything, I think. Yeah, and he, you know, he, he even the mayor Stodola, um, you know, whether or not he's handled this correctly or not, he's been in office since, uh, I believe, two thousand six, and uh, you know, there may be a feeling from some that uh, you know, new blood is needed. Uh, but Mayor Stodola, you know, he came from a background back during this first round of uh, gang violence that I referred to. He was the prosecutor mm. at that time and uh, was very effective in uh, implementing a strategy that was then focused on uh, reducing gang violence uh, then and in his part uh, prosecutions and uh, putting people away. Uh, so whether or not uh, this uh, ends up, uh, I'm sure uh, Representative uh, Sabin wouldn't be uh, putting this out if it were only exploring a run. Maybe this is to begin the process of uh, uh, getting donations and uh, starting the whole uh, process where a campaign comes about. But the timing on this, you can't help but wonder if uh, this coming uh, less than a week after this nightclub shooting, uh, if indeed uh, this is the impetus that has him uh, deciding that he would like to lead Little Rock. Okay, yeah, and it's certainly a story we'll be following for, you know, quite a while uh, to come until the 2018 election. Well, Chris, uh, one item that uh, you've been following uh, this week is uh, state officials uh, considering a temporary ban on this uh, herbicide that has uh, caused a, a lot of problems uh, in Arkansas, caused a lot of damage to crops because of uh, uh, the ability for this herbicide to drift and uh, cause Problems. Uh, first, uh, I guess this was the uh, Arkansas Plant Board uh, recommended a temporary ban on the use of uh, dicamba, and then that went before a panel of state lawmakers. Yeah, so as we record this, the state legislature's um, legislative council uh, approved this uh, ban on dicamba. It's a 120-day ban. Uh, dicamba is kind of a new herbicide on you know, the agricultural market that farmers have been using, mainly soybean and cotton farmers, um, because they're having to battle this uh, weed called pigweed, which has lately grown resistant to previous herbicides that they've used, like Roundup, um, which is uh, pretty common in homes and gardens. Um, Roundup ready soybeans and cotton and large number of other crops have for a long time been produced by Monsanto. They're genetically engineered crops. And with the onset of a resistant, a Roundup resistant form of pigweed that's kind of taken hold in areas of Northeast Arkansas, the boot heel of Missouri, as well as Western Tennessee, farmers are turning to this new technology um, that Monsanto is marketing called Extends. And Extends 
is the variety of soybean and cotton that is tolerant of dicamba. Now, the problem is that not all the soybeans being planted this year, and there are 3.5 million acres of soybeans. Um, it's the largest crop, uh, row crop that Arkansas produces. Not all are resistant to dicamba. And what's happening is dicamba is in hot, on hot days, on windy days. It's When it's applied to dicamba-resistant fields, it drifts onto non-dicamba-resistant fields, agricultural crops. And what we're seeing is these fields, roughly a third of all soybeans in the state, as well as other varieties, fruit trees, cotton, other things, are deteriorating as they're exposed to this chemical. So the Arkansas Plant Board has been hearing about this for quite a while. And last month, they, as you said, banned it, but it had to go through a number of uh, hoops, regulatory hoops, before it could take effect. And so today, as we record this, the Legislative Council approved that ban, and Arkansas is the first state to see this go into effect. Now, today, earlier today, I was at a, a meeting of the Agricultural Committee, uh, which heard a lot of testimony from uh, weed scientists. They heard a, some testimony from a representative from BASF, which uh, produces the only form of dicamba that's legally available in Arkansas up to this point. Um, let me play you a cut here from uh, weed scientist Ford Baldwin. He's uh, a professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas, uh, an agricultural expert. Um, here he is commenting on I guess the widespread nature of this phenomenon and the severity of it. Uh, all of a sudden now, every field of non-extend soybeans in these areas are affected. Those at similar, at similar growth stages are all affected to the same degree. Every field showing perfectly uniform symptoms, and some of these are miles from the nearest extend field. There's no way I can describe to you how bad this looks, what it looks like unless you physically go up there and look at it. There's no way you can fathom what I'm telling you unless you go look. And we've had people after people that have told us that. And in fact, I won't even engage with people now that want to tell me that we're overblowing this thing and we're sensationalizing unless they physically go up there and look at it first, then I'll talk to them. So um, Baldwin, in his testimony, said that soybeans that are exposed to dicamba and are not resistant uh, could see yield losses of up to 50 percent. Wow. Um, so it's quite an issue because obviously, you know, agriculture is a big part of the Arkansas economy. Nobody knows for sure really how it will affect Arkansas economically. Um, there was a lot of talk that even though a dicamba ban is going into effect this year, there most of the spraying and after planting has already been done. So we've kind of probably reached the a plateau kind of in, in seeing the damage, although there are areas farther south that um, have yet to do some planting, and so they may uh, be affected in the spraying. Um I want to play you a cut here uh, from Representative Joe Jett. He's questioning uh, a fellow um, from BASF. That's the chemical company that produces uh, Ingenia, which is the only, which was the only available uh, form of dicamba in the state up to this point. Uh, this is um, Joe Jett. He's a row crop farmer. 
state representative from Success, a Republican, uh, he plants soybeans. And he kind of describes his situation and also the situation economically that farmers are facing in the agricultural market. So uh, here, here's my question. How, do you, how, does, how does BASF justify making farmers that don't need this technology have to purchase this technology to protect their crops? I know of no, no other industry out there would make a consumer that don't want to have to purchase their product, make them purchase their product so that way they protect their livelihood. How do you justify that? Um, if, I, if I understand your question correctly, that uh, BSF is forcing par uh, growers to purchase the dicamba tolerant seed, um, in no way are we doing that. I can understand why some growers would select to do that and maybe choose not to apply um, based upon past history of issues with neighbors, perhaps. Um, but by no means are we forcing or requiring a grower to purchase dicamba. Are you denying that that's going on right now? No, I'm not denying that that some growers are are buying it as a an insurance against a. Well, if it's serious enough for somebody to have to buy it for an insurance, why will you not work with these farmers to help alleviate the problem? If you know there's a problem out there, why? I mean, why are you coming here saying saying that we're going to spray some more product, but we really don't know how we're going to fix this problem? And we got growers that are buying your in, buying your your technology, if you will. I'm assuming that's fifteen twenty dollars a bag. You got growers sitting in this audience. I know you got eight thousand acres of, of dicamba beans not spraying not spraying an ounce of it, to protect their livelihood. I know of no other no other industry, sir, that makes consumers have to buy their product to protect their stuff. And there's no way that you can justify it. So you can kind of see, hear the frustration in Joe Jett's voice. He is a soybean farmer, as I said. He's planting dicamba-resistant beans this year, but he's not spraying dicamba on them because he recognizes that it's uh, been a problem. Um, so this ban is going to go into effect on Tuesday, and it's a 120-day ban. Um, it's unclear, you know, what in the future, in 2018, what the plant board's going to decide. Um, you know, of course, the... Uh, legislature could take some moves, uh, pass a law to uh, further regulate this uh, industry. But um, as you kind of heard Joe Jett there, farmers are kind of in a bind because on the one hand, they want technology, crop technology, in which they can spray their fields and, you know, get rid of these weeds and help their yields. While at the same time, if they do that, they're affecting the overall market and if they don't do that, you know, obviously they have to ha resort to some other means to remove these weeds. So for the, uh, uh, this would be for the rest of the growing season. Are they planning yeah. to uh, study, look at the research and then come back next year? Um, I don't know precisely. I know that, you know, scientists with the Cooperative Extension Service have been, um, you know, looking, studying this. Uh, throughout the season, and I think they'll continue to. Um, there are, uh, I think, a couple more meetings left of the plant board um, that are focused specifically on this issue. Um, they've been happening weekly. And um, yeah, it's, I guess, what the, un the, the unanswered question at this point is what, how it'll affect the economics of agriculture in Arkansas and what impact it will be but this is the arkansas is the first state to do this uh, as i said missouri tennessee 
Um, they've seen some problems. Mississippi is starting to see some problems. Kansas, other Midwest states. And one of the things is with the heat, um, you know, of course, these southern states have, you know, warmer temperatures. That's what produces the volatility. So as you get later into the season, um, the into the summer, you might see more Midwest states having more complaints because mm-hmm. it'll get hotter up there. Well, this week uh, we got some uh, big news for uh, Arkansas finance officials. You know, it was only uh, a few months ago that uh, you had Governor Asa Hutchinson telling all of his agency heads to have some kind of contingency plan in place that revenue was coming in well below forecast each month. And there was talk about uh, some big budget cuts that uh, might uh, need to be made. Thankfully, though, the uh, revenue reports uh, started picking up. And uh, on Wednesday, we got the uh, revenue report for the last month of the fiscal year. It is good news, and it's somewhat surprising that we produced a small surplus in the end. That's uh, John Shelnut, an economist with the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration, talking to me about the uh, uh, report uh, from June. And generally, just uh, what happened uh, here in these uh, recent months? We were concerned about those earlier when we cut the forecast back in uh, in early May or end of April, and uh, that situation improved in the final two months of the year. And uh, in the end, officials uh, uh, said that uh, they have restored. $60 million out of $70 million in budget cuts that had been made because of the sluggish revenue a few months ago. Most of that money went toward the Medicaid Trust Fund, and uh, Arkansas's sales tax collection in June totaled $202 million. That's uh, nearly $8 million more than the same month last year, $2.6 million above forecast. But the big news overall for uh, fiscal year 2017, the state ended with a budget surplus of $15.7 million. So pretty well just saying that uh, we can kind of keep on uh, as we have been uh, planning out the budget in the state. Yeah, but we also also should know that despite the surplus, the uh, budget or the revenue is less than last year. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't, you know, there's no uh, indication that there will be an expansion of government services uh, in the near future, just Mm -hmm. based on the words of Asa Hutchinson as general disposition. Um, We've got further tax cuts coming in down the line that were approved earlier this year by the legislature. I think that go into effect uh, at the beginning of next year. Uh, or sometime in next year. Um, so uh, even though there's a surplus at the end of the fiscal year, I don't think we'll be seeing the budget issues resolved entirely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're moving uh, about 60,000 people off of the uh, state Medicaid rolls, uh, part of the Arkansas Works program. Uh, and that was partly because there were more people that had been projected there, and that was uh, uh, threatening uh, the state's budget. There are still a lot of uh, factors that are still to play. Uh, And on the topic of health care, worth noting that we will have the uh, U.S. Senate return to Washington next week, where they will resume talks about a uh, health care bill that uh, stalled. Uh, There weren't enough votes uh, before they broke for the uh, July 4th recess. 
Uh, and what we're hearing from Washington is that it's likely to be weeks before anything might happen before a vote if there can be some kind of agreement. You still have uh, uh, difficulty reaching any kind of agreement between the more conservative members of the Republican Party uh, and the more centrist uh, members. But uh, here in Arkansas, our uh, two senators, uh, John Bozeman and Tom Cotton, have uh, kept pretty low profiles uh, this week. There haven't been uh, public town hall meetings, uh, for instance. Uh, John Bozeman has had uh, some uh, meetings, and uh, Tom Cotton, I believe, was uh, out of state uh, for something else going on. Uh, There was a sit-in that uh, took place, the latest of uh, several that have occurred uh, recently. Uh, This sit-in took place uh, on Thursday uh, in the Little Rock offices for uh, both senators uh, in the same building here. Uh, But uh, so far, our senators really haven't uh, spoken very much uh, about that, uh, even though uh, Senator Cotton uh, was one of the uh, authors of the uh, Senate proposal so that's likely to be something that we'll be hearing more about in the uh, coming weeks. Yeah, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned the relative silence over the July 4th uh, recess. Of course, we began the week with July 4th on Tuesday, our Independence Day celebrations. Um, there was a Washington Post article this week that kind of described how uh, really very few, maybe just a handful of the 100 senators in the Senate appeared at July 4th parades or uh, town hall events or anything, uh, particularly on the on the Republican side, um, they noticed that it was a trend uh, to really, um, as they posited, avoid the health care question. Um, so we'll see how it goes, I guess. And, um, you know, m- maybe eventually we'll, we'll get a statement or a, uh, a uh, interview request granted for from uh, Senators John Bozeman and Tom Cotton, but we uh, yeah. If we'll, you're listening, give us a call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you've made it this far in the podcast, <laughs> um, Senators Bozeman and, and Cotton, uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, with that, um, this is KUAR's Week in Review podcast, available at the end of each week here at KUAR.org or wherever you get your podcasts whether that be iTunes or another service. KUAR is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, although we're editorially independent. As you heard earlier, Bobby Ampison, the managing editor of Arkansas Public Media, joined us. Uh, We'd like to extend our thanks to him. He had to uh, go work on some other stuff, so he couldn't join us for the whole thing, but uh, we appreciate his time nonetheless. I'm Chris Hickey. And I'm Michael Hepling. All right, have a great weekend. Thank you.